So in previous episodes here on the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast, we have talked about fermentation. It's a method of food preservation that I have used throughout my homestead over the last number of years. Um, And we've broached some of the basics around fermentation. However, I have found there's still a really large segment of homesteaders who are still a little bit nervous when it comes to the topic of ferments. Um, Sometimes we don't know what is normal, what it's supposed to taste like, look like, smell like, you know, what's the white fuzzy stuff on the top of the jar? Um, How long can I leave it on my counter? Is it safe to leave it on my counter? There's just a lot of questions when we come from the standard American way of thinking about food. Um, Ferments are a whole new wild frontier, which are exciting and wonderful, but it leaves a lot of those question marks. So today I wanted to bring Uh, an expert on who is no stranger to the world of fermentation. So Wardy Harmon lives in the Boise area of Idaho with her dear family. She is the author of The Complete Idiot's Guide to Fermenting Foods, her brand new book, uh, also called Fermenting, and other traditional cooking eBooks. Through Traditional Cooking School's Bible-based cooking program, she helps Christian families who know that they should cook healthy for their family but don't know what to try or where to start. So um, as I'll explain in this episode, I've known Wardy for a very long time. We've been internet friends for for over a decade, and she was instrumental in my entrance into the world of traditional foods and real food, and I just adore everything she creates. So uh, you're going to love this episode with Wardy. Kind of consider this uh, fermentation 2.0 and kind of getting into those deeper topics. So here we go. You're listening to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast, where ambitious people master the art of returning to their roots. Have you found yourself disenchanted with society or wishing you could opt out of the rat race? Perhaps you're craving a life that's meaningful and tangible, a life where you can create and produce instead of merely consume. I'm Jill Winger, best-selling author and longtime homesteader. Over the last 10 years, I have helped thousands of families create more connection, grow amazing organic food, and find the ultimate fulfillment through an old-fashioned lifestyle. And I can do the same for you. Now, on to our episode. Hey, Wardy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jill. So good to be here and see you again. Absolutely. So uh, I just have to tell everybody listening that and maybe you know this, maybe you don't. I feel like we've known each other or, or known of each other online for quite a while. You were one of the first bloggers that kind of introduced me into the world of traditional foods back when you had Ganofkalins. Did I say that right? Yeah, close enough. Oh, close enough. Okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, when I was kind of transitioning from standard American diet to into like understanding what whole grains were and uh, Sukhanat was a big one for me to figure out. Mm-hmm. and how to cook with whole foods. And then that ultimately kind of led us into homesteading. You were one of those first voices that I found. So I always have kind of a, a big soft spot for anything you produce because it, it was really transformative for me. Yeah. I remember that. And I have a soft spot for, for you too. I watch everything you do and I love seeing everything you guys are up to on your homestead and in business. You're doing amazing. Well, I think we both, we've come a long way. (laughs) It's been fun (laughs) side by side. So, yeah, ten um, years plus, lots happens. Lots <laughs> happens. Yeah, big life changes. So, uh, so when we were putting together our guest list for this season, you know, I knew we wanted to talk about fermentation because uh, that's a big part of preserving food on a homestead, or or even just 
on a, not on a homestead in a regular home. And yeah. you're the very first person who came to mind, because I know you've done so much teaching and educating around fermentation. And so, um, I'm super excited to have you here today. And you do have a, a new fermentation book coming out here pretty quick. Is that right? That's right. It's called fermenting and it's part of a series, um, the self-sufficient kitchen series. The release date is August 3rd. So depending on when people are listening to this, it should be in your favorite bookstore, at least orderable. Um, yeah, it's coming out. It's actually just so every, I don't know if anybody knows, but you know, nearly 10 years ago, I published the complete idiot's guide to fermenting foods. Yep. And this is actually a reprint of that updated with some new recipes and updated information. A lot of the information on fermenting doesn't change, um, but it just needed a brush up. So if anybody owns that book and wants updated or doesn't own that book and wants the updated anyway, it's called fermenting. Okay. I actually do own that book. I still have it. I think you sent it to me right when it came out. So yeah, I <laughs> so this will be I'll have to grab the new one. And so this covers like kind of the broad range, right? Like I think I saw in the book description, kombucha and, you know, your fermented vegetables and fruits, kind of the whole nine yards. Yeah. It's fermenting all foods. And so we even include grain fermenting, which would be sourdough or dairy fermenting, which people usually call culturing dairy. So yeah, I mean, from your fruits and vegetables, your meats, beans, grains, beverages, including kombucha, sausages, there's, there's everything in there. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Um, super excited. So congratulations on, on having that come back out. Thanks. <laughs> so I have, I don't know. Well, I've, I'm curious to see how this conversation flows. Cause I have some questions and I, I feel like that we might hit some interesting territory as we go here. So, um, I'd kind of just like to dig into some of some troubleshooting around fermentation. I'm, I'm picturing this episode, um, or envisioning this episode being, you know, for folks who maybe have dabbled in ferments, they've done a little sauerkraut, they've done a few things here and there. Maybe they're like, is this what it's supposed to be? Is it supposed to taste like this and smell like this and look like this? Or, you know, how long is it good for us? So I'd love to kind of dive into those yeah. secondary questions that come up once you've tried it once or twice. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Okay. So first off, just curious. Um, I know you do obviously a lot of different traditional food skills. What would you say when it comes to preserving just roughly a percentage of like, how much food do you ferment versus putting it up via other methods? Sure. Well, I don't, I don't actually can like you do. Um, I, multiple reasons, but, um, you know, I either ferment foods or I dehydrate them. So, um, you know, there were days or previous years, I preserved a lot of food. I'm not preserving as much now just because of life circumstances, mm -hmm. but I, I would say we ferment 75% and dry the rest. Um, so I really like putting up sauerkraut, kimchi, and pickles. We don't do all the ferments. And if you put in the ferment category, your sourdough and your culture dairy, I mean, we actually do that more than anything because arguably fermentation is the most nutritious way to preserve or prepare food. Um, and if you think about it, we're doing it with beans and grains and veggies, fruits, fruits too, but it's different in terms of the point I'm making. The point I'm making is that a lot of plant foods have what we call in traditional um, food circles, anti-nutrients. So your phytic acid, your lectins, your oxalic acid, and your whatnot, um, enzyme inhibitors. And so if you do a fermenting process, whether it's sourdough or it's a lacto-ferment, like to make your sauerkraut, you are reducing those anti-nutrients. And there's so many people with autoimmune disease nowadays, digestive issues, um, and 
you know, it could be that the bloating and the discomfort and the poor nutrition they're having is from having a hugely plant-based diet where the plants are not actually fermented or soaked or what's necessary to make them more nutritious and digestible. So that's why our family turns to fermentation methods because, you know, we do have some digestive issues and it just means that it eases our digestion and we get more minerals from what we eat and stuff like that. So that was somewhat of a windy answer, but I hope that was good. Yeah, no, that's great. So would it be safe to say then that, you know, with most food preservation methods, we're looking at how many nutrients am I losing over what time period, right? Whether we're freezing or canning or just keeping it in the root cellar. But with fermentation, is it safe to say that we're actually potentially increasing nutrients by using this method over the others? Yes, there is, you know, some things don't change, minerals don't change, but you get more probiotics, you get more enzymes that benefit your digestion, you get more vitamins, certain vitamins, depending on the ferment, like sauerkraut, you get an explosion of vitamin C. So, you know, where canning and there's certain places for canning, so I'm not knocking it, but where canning, you would probably have a net nutrient loss. Dehydrating, you would probably maintain nutrient, but depending on how you store it, you may have a nutrient loss because if it's storage in a long time, for a long time in warm temperatures, moist environment, you're going to have a nutrient loss. Fermenting tends to, um, increase nutrition as well as decrease the anti-nutrition, anti-nutrients. So yeah, it's arguably the healthiest way to preserve your food. Definitely. And that's notable just because, you know, and in the research I've done personally on, on preserving, it's such a concern. And, and like, I love canning, as you said, I love canning, yeah. but there is that element. You do lose nutrients immediately as soon as it's going in the hot water bath or the pressure canner. And you kind of have to take that into consideration. You know, you're going to lose nutrients in a root cellar or in the freezer, but um, yeah, fermentation, I, I definitely think wins the price as far as, as nutrient value goes. Yes. And I just want to say like, all of these have pros and cons. And so like it wins the prize on nutrient preservation and actually nutrient increase, but you need cold storage, you know, canning is so convenient because you can put it on a shelf and you know, you're, you're eating green beans instead of going without them, but you, you know, you don't, the storage needs is just right. You need space, but it doesn't have to be certain temperatures and whatnot with canning. So you have to weigh all these things. Absolutely. Yes, for sure. Um, okay. So just, we kind of shift gears a little to talk about processes. Cause this is where I think sometimes people maybe overthink a little bit, or they're not sure, you know, with canning or, or methods like that, there's so much strictness to make sure we're not getting into the world of botulism or food poisoning or sure. issues like that. So there's naturally when people come from that world, they get into fermentation and there's a fear that, well, if I have to be so careful with canning, I'm leaving these foods out on a counter. <laughs> Obviously <laughs> this has to be so much more dangerous, but that's not necessarily the case. Is that, would you say that's correct? Yeah. Well, I guess what I would say is there's always, there's always risks because we're preserving food and we're doing, you know, a time tested method of putting it up and there's not only the cleanliness of how you do it, there's the food and how much salt, and then there's how it's stored. So there's a lot of factors there. I would say that, um, with fermenting, well, the umbrella of fermenting covers dairy and grains and fruits and vegetables and beverages. So you do get specifics in each one of those. But in general, the process is there's a mother culture and or salt, both of which 
are protective of the culturing going the right way instead of the wrong way. Um, so, I mean, I guess I, I guess I, it would probably be not right of me to make an argument that it's so easy and there's no risk because that's not true. But I do think it has several advantages because it's less precise um, and you can be a lot more flexible in your recipes, but you still do have to be careful about things, but they're kind of common sense things, I guess. Just clean utensils, follow a tried and true recipe with the right salt ratio. If you add a starter culture, which is just usually a you know, a powder veggie starter culture or whatever specified for the type of ferment you're doing, then that's protective. So as you're starting out, I would say rely on tried and true um, recipes and methods, but you'll probably find if you've canned that there's a lot more freedom in it. And you know that Jill, cause yes. you do both. And yes. it's, and it's also, you know, doesn't heat up the kitchen so much and you kind of just set it and forget it, I guess. And the key is yes. don't forget it though. And so many people, they have written to me and said, I started it and it's been 10 days now. I completely forgot. <laughs> so you actually can't forget it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, with ferments, you know, with canning, one thing that gets people is there, you know, with botulism, you don't always have signs that it has botulism. You know, you're not going to necessarily smell it or see it. Um, but with fermentation, when they go bad, when a ferment goes bad, would, will you know when it's bad? Yeah. In like 99% of cases, the, the risk of botulism is really if you're, um, fermenting meat uh, and that develops over time. So that's why we only recommend like, you know, short, short fermented meats and, or you use one of those, like if you're doing sausages, you use a pickling salt, which is nitrate. And I know everybody's like nitrate free, nitrate free, nitrate free, but a small amount of nitrate, in my opinion, is worth the risk. <laughs> yes. And when people are saying nitrate free, nitrate, it's because all those packaged meats that are in the grocery store, you can just overload on nitrates if you eat those all the time. And that's a yes. whole other can of worms, just like the standard American diet, yes. but safe preservation in terms of meat long-term, like long-term, like fermented sausages that you might hang for a month you know, you need to use nitrates. If you're doing a corned beef where you're putting it in the fridge for a few days, you don't need nitrates, but you only ferment it for a couple of days. Right. Um, right. So in other words, to go back to your original question, you know, when you're doing fruits and veggies, you do know when they're bad and sometimes they're actually not bad. <laughs> so, and I do actually, and I'll give you this link to share with your audience, Jill. I do have an article on our website, traditionalcookingschool.com, which is, um, it not only tells you like how to prevent mold, which is kind of one of your biggest common issues yes. with ferments, but troubleshooting steps where I just walk you through, you know, doing the, the visual test and the smell test. And we can go through those steps if you want, but there's no need to, um, there's no need really to panic because you can generally see. And I think the thing that, or see or smell, but I think the thing that generally confuses most people that are new to fermenting is they might confuse, ooh, I don't like this with this is bad. And that's a common question I get. And so generally what I tell people is you may like not be used to fermented foods. And so that sour or salty or like that real bite that it gets as it develops the flavor might be like, Ooh, <laughs> this is strong, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. And you generally know what's bad or not, because what's bad is going to taste or smell repulsive. Like it's rotting. 
And that's very different from something that you just don't care for yet. So wh- wh- what has your experience been with that, Jill? Very similar. Like I've, I've, I've never had, I don't know if I've ever had a ferment go where I thought it was like rancid or putrid or repulsive. Like it's, it's gotten sour or kind of like, eh, this isn't to my taste, but it never yeah. was to the point of, oh, I definitely need to throw this out. Cause it's really, really bad. Um, it's yeah. almost, it seems like it just, yeah, it, it might not be my preference, but it's not something I would perceive as dangerous, at least in my experience. Yeah. 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 And in most cases, <clears throat> the people that I hear from, it ends up being, it's not to my taste rather than it's bad. <laughs> exactly. So does yeah, that mean it doesn't happen? Do you have suggestions for people who, you know, we don't eat a lot of those sort of fermented foods necessarily in our, if you're coming from the standard American diet, how do you suggest people transition into those different flavors? Do you have any tips for that? Yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, like the, I'm sorry for clearing my no throat. <laughs> no it doesn't cause you too many audio problems. Um, so first is, you know, be willing to try again, like parents, you know, with your children, you have to give them the food, a new food, possibly multiple times before they're like, Oh, I like this or even willing to, you know, eat their serving without complaining. And some kids are picky and some kids aren't, but you know, with the picky eaters, you can't give up after the first time. Well, we grownups can be picky too. And we've actually had lots more years (laughs) to settle into our habits. So even if you don't like it the first time, I would say don't give up and keep trying. Um, most people start out with like sauerkraut, but there are other ferments you can do like a grated carrots, um, an apple chutney. We have a fantastic recipe on our website, traditionalcookingschool.com. I can give you the link, Jill, for an apple chutney. Awesome. So for people who don't like it, why don't you go with a sweeter one? One that might give you, you know, it might be different than the fruit you're used to eating because it will have that bite and it'll have a little bit of salt. Um, flavor, but it's going to be sweeter and not quite so, so strong. So those are really the two tips. One is be willing to keep trying it to see if you will adjust. You actually might find that, you know, your first bite's like, ick, the next bite, you're like, hmm, not so bad. And then your body starts craving it because you've given your body a taste and our bodies tell us what we need. Yeah. And the second tip would be go for a milder or sweeter ferment. I've definitely experienced the body asking for the ferment, which even when my taste buds were like, I'm not sure what I think of this. I, I just was drawn to it. It was a weird feeling. Like I yeah. want to eat more of this, even though I'm not really sure if what the, what I think of the taste is <laughs> very strange, but listen to your body. Yeah. Listen to your body. Yes. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> um, so, so you found of, yourself in the fridge, just scooping, I have scooping done out the sauerkraut. Yeah. And my children have done that too. Like even my little kids, I remember my, when my oldest was three or four, she just wanted, she just went through this period. She wanted sauerkraut with every meal. And I'm like, Hey, let's do it. If you're, if your body is asking you for it, we're going to give you all the sauerkraut you want. So very good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so kind of along the lines of, of the, the flavors, well, sort of, maybe not, but starter cultures. I know you mentioned that a few minutes ago and that's something that I at the beginning. And even now I've not used a lot of starter cultures and I'm speaking specifically to like fermenting vegetables or fruits, obviously sauerkraut is different or not sauerkraut, sourdough is different <laughs> and kombucha is different, but, um, I've just done a lot of just salt, like, you know, a 2% salt brine to start. What is your, do you have a preference or kind of a rule of thumb to know if you should use a starter culture or maybe what the benefits of adding that additional ingredient is? Yeah. So I generally don't use starter cultures with veggies, just like you, because salt just works great. Um, 
always with fruits, you should use a starter culture in addition to a little salt because otherwise fruit is very sugary. <laughs> and so it doesn't go the right direction. It doesn't go into a lacto ferment. It can become alcoholic or actually, you know, and then vinegar. So, or not necessarily in that order, but anyway, it goes different than a lacto ferment. And maybe I should back up and say, we talk about fermentation. There's different kinds of ferments. So you can ferment and turn into vinegar. You can ferment and turn into alcohol. You can ferment and do lacto ferment, which lacto is for lactobacilli, which is not necessarily dairy, but mm -hmm. it's a class of organisms, beneficial bacteria called lactobacilli. And in a salt ferment, like what we're talking about here and what we mostly do with fruits and veggies, we are giving a salty environment specifically for those lactobacilli to pro proliferate and culture the food. And arguably lacto-fermentation gives the most health benefits. So that's why, you know, we do that with fruits and veggies. Um, so now I forgot your question. <laughs> oh, what did I, what did I ask? I think starter culture. Um, yeah. When you would use, you answered that. Yeah. For fruit, you do vegetables, not always. Yes. So you need it for fruits. Now people might consider it for veggies if they're on like a special gut healing diet where the practitioner or the leader says ferment your veggies with this starter culture and the starter culture has specific strains of lactobacilli that they want to specifically be cultured in that ferment. So it's instead of a wild, just whatever's on the fruits and vegetables proliferating, they want, a, 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 they want the ferment to go in a special direction with a special culture of um, organisms that are beneficial for your gut. And sure. in addition, some people like to do starter cultures just because it ensures a like reliable flavor profile result. And so maybe they've had trouble fermenting. Sometimes their sauerkraut turns out and sometimes it doesn't, but they know that if they use a starter culture, it's most of the time going to turn out. And that's because you're providing that starter culture and just giving it like a jump start at the beginning. So you end up with it working, which maybe they're struggling with. It didn't even, hasn't even been working reliably. And you also end up with a reliable flavor at the end. That makes sense. Okay. Um, so, and if you don't, you know, there's them out there, starter cultures out there. Um, Homesteader Supply is one of our favorite sources and she has a veggie starter culture, which I really like. And you just add like a 16th of a teaspoon or something per quart of ferment. Um, but you know, you, if you have probiotic capsules in your house, <laughs> you can actually just open one of those and put it in because that you can use that as a starter culture. Okay. What about whey as a starter? Uh-huh. Whey, we all got onto that by nourishing traditions, I think. Yeah. And I don't have a problem with it. You can use whey as a starter culture, which is the, um, what's dripped off of plain kefir or plain yogurt. Mm -hmm. And the, it can't have been, you know, heated or cooked. It has to have live organisms in it, which means that if you made farmer's cheese or something where you boiled milk with vinegar at a high heat, the way that comes off that you cannot use for fermenting because it's been cooked. There's nothing alive in it anymore. So it has to be yes. dripped off of plain kefir or plain yogurt with active cultures. And that you can use at the ratio of like one tablespoon per quart of ferment as starter culture. And it basically, you know, provides those organisms from the beginning. The biggest downside um, 
to this is people report that it makes their ferment slimy. Yeah. A little bit slimy or softer. And personally, I, I can say that's true, but I don't think it's a huge downside. I don't think we haven't enjoyed our sauerkraut like that, but in recent years, I've stopped using whey and just done salt for our veggie ferments. Mm -hmm. Um, but it again provides that same benefit. It'll ensure your ferment has a good starter culture, a good set of organisms from the beginning at a higher number so that the ferment has a better chance of um, succeeding. Yes. I've also noticed the different um, consistency with the whey. So I've just stuck with salt mostly, but yeah. yeah. In fact, yeah. like in my book, um, the original version, a lot of the recipes called for whey. And in one of the opening chapters, I said, you know, if you are dairy free or don't care for whey, use these things instead. And I still would get tons of emails and things from people or even poor book reviews saying these recipes call for whey. They're not dairy free. And I'm yes. like, it's optional. So anyway, yes. we revised the book and whey is not, whey is just one of multiple starter cultures listed in the recipes as an optional add, except for the fruits yes. and yes. You know, the dairy and stuff. So anyway, you don't have to use whey. <laughs> <laughs> not required. Yes. Good to, Good to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Redmond's Real Salt, the number one salt I use in all of my homestead cooking, canning, and fermentation. I've learned over the years that not all salt is created equal, and having the good stuff really does make a difference in your culinary adventures, especially when it comes to canning or fermentation. If you use the general run-of-the-mill grocery store salt with its iodine and its sugars and its additives, it can cause your canned or fermented foods to have off flavors, textures, and colorations. So it really does make a difference to get the good stuff. Redmond's is the only salt mined in the good old US of A, and I love that they use sustainable practices in their mining, and it contains 60 plus trace minerals that not only make it good for you, but it actually tastes better too. Since I can't mine salt here on our homestead, obviously, I like to buy salt in bulk because that saves me some cash and it never goes bad. I actually bought a 25 pound bag of Redmond salt last summer and I'm still using it. I just keep it in a bucket down in my basement pantry and it's still going strong. Right now, Redmond's is offering 15% off your entire order just for my podcast listeners. Head on over to theprairiehomestead.com slash salt and use the code homestead to snag your discount. Now, back to our episode. Have you ever dealt with cross-contamination? So if you, you know, you have your sourdough on one part of your kitchen and your ferments, and I've always heard warnings of that, you know, keep so many feet away. Um, I'm curious, like the ramifications of not heating warnings. Have you ever actually experienced the cross-contamination? Yes, I have. The biggest, I've had cross-contamination when I've been having my sourdough near my cheese and cheese, um, yes. does not solidify into curds. It gets like all billowy and puffy and kind of powdery. I have had that right. happen. Yes. Okay. That's <laughs> not fun. Yes. Yeah, not fun. And then recently I had was making our raw milk yogurt in the instant pot and the kombucha was brewing near and the the raw the yogurt got a little bit grainy. So uh, that actually I continue to break that rule, but one time I think somehow they shared a little bit. 
<laughs> but generally the rule is different types of ferments five feet apart. So, you know, if you have a couple different like pickles and sauerkraut and carrots and stuff, that's the same type of ferment. Those can all be together, but keep that away from your sourdough starter. Keep that away from your culturing dairy. Keep that away from your kombucha. Those are, yeah. I, I just, yeah. Go ahead. Challenging in a small modern yeah. kitchen. <laughs> it can be tricky. Yeah. Yes, it is. And at the height of gardening season or when you're doing a lot of things, it can be challenging. But, you know, most of us are generally not making all the things all the time. So I think, you know, if you have a bread baking day, then put your starter away. Then you have cheese day, do that. So, yeah. yeah. So when we're talking about ferments on the counter, um, you know, a lot of recipes, it depends on which recipe you're looking at or what food, but some of them will call for like a five day ferment out on the counter. Some call for a 14 day ferment. Do you have like a, a kind of a sweet spot or does it really just depend on the food itself? Yeah, it's pretty dependent on the food itself, I think, because like carrots and green beans are just hard and they take longer to ferment. It just takes more time for the um, brine to penetrate and soften and develop the, the softening, but still crunchy and the flavor same thing with pickles. They could take longer, but pickles in hot temperatures, like you can't do those long because they will go to mush like that. So it really depends on the type of food. Um, and if you just think about it, like sauerkraut, cabbage is, is not as hard as carrots. So that's why that's often a couple days shorter. Fruits are just a day or two because you don't want them to go alcoholic and they tend to be soft. So yeah, it just has to do with the food. And I do know there's sauerkraut recipes like 14, 21, 30 days. Personally, yeah. I do sauerkraut only about a week and then I put it in the fridge and refrigerate fridge and in cold storage, um, your ferments still continue to sour just much more slowly. So I really, we really like the texture at a week and then we like the continued aging in cold storage. So there is flexibility there, but the risk is if you go too long, you end up with mush. Yeah. And I've always, I'm glad to hear you say that you go for a week because I usually go for a week and I've always seen the recipes for, you know, 21 days and I'm like, man, I'm just like a, a sauerkraut lightweight. I don't have yeah. the oomph to go all the way because I just don't like the flavor as much after it's, it's been on the counter that long, but I'm glad to hear you're, you're similar with your time frame yeah. there. Yeah. And the texture too. I don't like sauerkraut that that soft. I prefer it to have yeah. like a nice crunch. crunch. <laughs> Gotta have a crunch. Yeah. Um, do you use airlocks or what's your favorite? I know you've probably tried a million things over the years. What's your favorite setup? Yeah, I do like airlocks. Um, and the ones that I use, we've just had for years. They're from Homesteader Supply again. She calls it the Pickle Pro, mm -hmm. but there's all kinds of them. And I wouldn't say that any are necessarily better than another. I do think you get a better result with airlocks, which you probably know, Jill, because Although fermenting is very simple and you can just use a wide mouth mason jar with a metal band and lid, you can end up with, um, well, the ferment, the fermenting organisms produce gases. So it can just, you could have an explosion or you, it just oozes out the lid. So if you use an airlock instead, it allows those gases to pop out bubble by bubble instead of building up pressure in your jar. So it makes for a um, less messy, potentially messy ferment. And it also, um, well, I mean, you don't want air getting in. And the only way to completely stop that is airtight. None of these lids are airtight. So even though you don't want it, it's okay. 
Um, it's just that, you know, you have a better ferment, the less air that can get in. So with an airlock, it allows gases out and then tighten down the lid as much as you can to keep as much outside air out. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense. Yes. Um, I had, I exploded a bottle of water kefir once and that was very exciting. Oh. So try not to do that again. Yeah. The worst. <laughs> so it's good. good to let that pressure out before we get to that point. Yeah. Sure. So, yeah. So I'll just say anyone who is um, fermenting with or without an airlock, just unscrew that lid just a bit every day, just release that pressure. And also the gases tend to lift up the mixture. Now it doesn't happen like with carrots and green beans that you're fermenting whole or in sticks, but any kind of shredded mixture like sauerkraut or kimchi or shredded carrots, the fermenting gases will lift it up and then you'll get air pockets inside. So when you're undoing the lid to release some of that pressure, you may as well take the whole thing off and press the mixture back down in the jar. So it's all below the brine. Um, the brine is protective. The brine protects from oxygen. Oxygen makes your ferment go a different direction like alcoholic or spoil. Oxygen also um, raises the levels of histamines and so many people have histamine intolerance. So the more you can keep your mixture compact below the brine, free of as much oxygen as possible, just the better result and healthiest ferment you're gonna get. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, can we shift gears for a minute and talk about, kind of go back, circle back to the mold and the yeast and kind of Trump's troubleshooting tips for that? Because I feel like that's what trips up a lot of new ferment, fermenter fans, yeah. ferment fans. <laughs> like it's really intimidating when you're like, what is this stuff on my ferment? Yep. Okay, so first of all, if you notice anything on top of your ferment, don't panic. And again, I'll give Jill the link to my troubleshooting article, but I'll just walk you through the steps here. First thing you're going to do is smell it. It can smell sour. It can smell pungent. It can be something you're not used to. It can even smell yeasty, but it shouldn't smell putrid, rotten, or like it's spoiling. If it smells like that, you do toss it. If it smells rotten or you know putrid, you do toss it. If it just smells sour or pungent and sometimes gases build up and you take the lid off and the first release is like, oh, but then it dissipates and then you smell it again. And they're like, oh, that's just salty and sour. So again, don't panic, really assess what are you smelling here? The second thing you do is then you look at what might, might be growing on top. Um, so mold is fuzzy. It's also different colors than white, it could be gray, green, brown, and it's always fuzzy and lifted. If you have white that's flat and not fuzzy, that's called calm yeast, which develops just right at the top where a ferment is exposed to oxygen and it is harmless and edible. You may not like it, but there's nothing wrong with it. That's just, um, uh, well, I guess I should say there's some people who, have sensitivities to yeast or need to avoid it for gut healing or something. So I'm not gonna say it's fine for everybody, but a generally healthy, normal person, don't be disturbed by a flat white yeast overgrowth called calm. What you wanna be concerned about is anything that's fuzzy and not white. Um, and you can skim it away and then kind of let the mixture settle, you know, give off any gases or whatever, smell it again. But it's possible if you had fuzzy mold that you, it's not ruined. It's just right there at the top again, where it's exposed to oxygen. So again, you don't have to toss it at this point. So to summarize, we've done the smell test. Then we've 
kind of identified what might be growing on top and whatever it is can be skimmed away. And then you will taste it. And if it tastes moldy, which I think we all know the taste of mold or mildew, that means the mold has kind of gone down into the ferment, then I would advise tossing it. Also, when you taste, you're looking at the texture of the vegetables. And if they've gone mushy and like not pleasant, it doesn't necessarily mean they're bad, but nobody's going to want to eat them. So again, I'm so sorry, but you might just want to feed those that to the chickens. But if it just tastes salty, sour, even strong, but not moldy or mildewy, then it's fine. And this process might happen like during your week-long sauerkraut ferment when you're just inspecting, or you might find out at the end because you actually haven't checked <laughs> for seven days yeah. and you're like, oh, what's on top? So you can go through this process at any time. If you go through it and it's like day three of a seven-day ferment and you skim away, um, you can cover it back up and let it keep fermenting. Okay. If, if, so, if you've determined it's still good. Sure. So mold is not necessarily the end of the world as long as it hasn't penetrated all the way through. That's correct. And I do want to caveat with this because there are very sensitive individuals sure. who have may have mold allergies or um, autoimmune issues or, you know, gut healing diet. And I think people in generally good health, you know, we battle mold all the time in the air or whatnot. And so a speck of it is not necessarily going to hurt us. And the, the brine and the salt and the starter culture are going to be protective of that not getting a foothold and taking over the ferment. But somebody who's very, very sensitive, you know, they might not want to keep that. And they actually might want to consider completely airtight fermenting, such as in um, containers where, you know, there's a rubber gasket and the lid clamps down and there's an airlock. So there is no way outside air is going to get in there and spoil that. The only thing is, is that the bubbling gases can get out. And that's where you get no, no low to no histamines, mm. no mold. And I, it sounds strange that we're even talking about some mold is okay. Well, I'm just saying we're generally healthy individuals with a strong immune system. We are around mold all the time. So if you skim sure. it away, the rest of it may likely die and just hasn't, you know, hurt the rest of your ferment. <laughs> Do you think I'm yeah. scaring anyone, Jill? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, the, we've all, we, we've what talked about say? moldy cheese before, you know, like you, some mold is it's good. Some mold is your friend. So it's, it's fine. <laughs> These homesteaders, they're tough. They can handle it. Um, All right. What do you do? I will, I haven't had a lot of mold issues. And that's part of the reason, like people ask me, and I'm like, uh, well, I, I mean, I, I skim off, I think I've had it once or twice and I've just skimmed it because it didn't penetrate down into yeah. the brine very far, but I just haven't had a lot of issue with it. Um, I don't know if it's just our climate or, you know, Wyoming is pretty dry or I don't know. Um, is it coming in, if you are going to have contamination, is it going to be primarily air that's bringing those spores in or could it be like coming in off of the, the, the food itself? Both, both. both. It'll be on the food itself. And if you don't use a starter culture, whatever is on the food at the beginning is that can make it in that salty brine or salt is going to proliferate and flourish. Um, so ideally it's just the lactobacilli that are naturally present that are going to do that. But you'll have less chance of mold if you do a starter culture. And I guess I should add, sometimes mold grows at the top, but sometimes if you're skimming it away or pulling it off, you can tell there's stems that have gone down into your liquid. And so that would be more a cause for concern than just a dot on the top. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. I don't have a huge problem with mold either. I do think it's more of an issue in like humid, very warm climates or um, seasons. Mm -hmm. So there's just limits of geography. If you don't, if you can't 
keep your house humidity and temperature right around room temperature, then you potentially run into more issues. Yeah. And you know, I'm, well, you're, you're near, you're Boise, right? So yeah, you probably have about as much humidity as we have in Wyoming, which is like, correct. Quite dry. So <laughs> not great for the skin, but good for the firmness. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we have wrinkles, but no mold in our sauerkraut. That's so. right. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So once you transfer into cold storage, um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of recommendations, you know, eat your ferment within three months. I've eaten definitely ferments that are much older than three months that still were good looking and smelling. And, um, what's your, like, how far will you push that storage period when it, once it's in the fridge or cold storage? Oh, I think you can go a year and you can freeze ferments too. Now, some of them don't freeze that well, the texture changes, but, um, you can freeze fermented apple chutney and sauerkraut and all kinds of shredded types of ferments and that will make them last longer. But the thing is it's got salt and it's got a starter culture. And if you keep it at the back of your refrigerator, it stays nice and cold. And yeah, now fruit ferments are different though. You should not, you should probably consume those within a few weeks if you're keeping them in the refrigerator. Otherwise you should store, you should freeze them. And you will have some nutrient and probiotic loss in the freezer, but they don't completely die. And if you know they're going to be in there for, you know, more than a few months, I would double or triple zipper seal bag. Mm-hmm. It'll prevent freezer burn and it'll also prevent a uh, loss of probiotic. Okay. That's good. I have never tried freezing them. That's a really smart idea. I don't know why. It just never occurred to me I could do that. So well, there's a couple know, companies yeah. where you can order and they arrive frozen. And that's how I learned about yeah. it. I was like, Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> why I not? Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, Okay. Yeah. Learn something new. Lots of new things today. Um, okay. So we're getting close on our time. So I just had one other question that this is, this has bothered me for a while. And I don't know if there's an easy answer to this, but I know a lot of homesteaders are in the same boat. I am. I don't have a root cellar yet. We were going to build one this year and it, we got distracted with this soda fountain that we bought. So <laughs> root cellar is on the back burner, but it's tricky to, you know, if you're doing a bunch of sauerkraut or a bunch of old fashioned pickles or things, to store them unless you have a bunch of refrigerators for ferment. So is there any strategies that a, a homestead or anyone could use um, if they want to do a lot of preservation via fermenting, but they don't have a root cellar or a giant refrigerator? Yeah, I don't really have another option because it does need to be cold, like refrigerated. Cold. Well, yeah, less than 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Our fridge is, okay. our fridge is like 41 degrees. So you can go a little bit warmer, but it does need to be cool temperatures. I don't have a solution for that. It's unfortunately like one of the big cons with fermenting in modern society where homes don't have root cellars like they used to, because people, you know, you know, basically they just have to have root cellars. We don't have to have them anymore. So they aren't built. So I'm sorry. No, that's all right. I kind of, I figured I just didn't, you know, it's just, it's frustrating. It's frustrating with, you know, the lack of root cellars. I feel like we should start a movement to bring back the root cellar (laughs) and have all new home builds. They all have root cellars. It would be yeah. helpful. Um, yeah. I mean, base, yeah. if, if you have a below ground basement that stays cool and think about like, if you were fermenting at the end of the summer, late fall, like, you know, if you could time it such that your ferments are going to the basement when it's going to be colder through the winter and it feeds you all winter, I could mm-hmm. see that working. It's just, you don't want a couple months in a warm basement. And 
and I know basements, if they're below ground, the temperature fluctuates a little bit, but they'll still sure. be colder in the winter. So better than, yeah, better than sitting up in your pantry, up in your kitchen. Yeah. Sure. In fact, I mean, they cannot sit up in your pantry or up in your kitchen <laughs> yeah. for weeks or months. Yeah, for sure. For sure. This okay. won't work. Yeah. So definitely one of those limitations we talked about at the beginning where, you know, you might, you, you might compare that with a canning or freezing nutrient loss versus storage space and have to weigh that out yep. depending on your situation. Yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, this was, oh, were you, were you going to say something else? No, I just said okay. exactly. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I was, I was going to say, thank you so much. This has been absolutely wonderful. So much good information. Um, where can folks find you? Just r- remind them one more time if they want to follow along with all of the amazing content you create online and some, I know you have courses and some programs that are really, really amazing. Yeah. We're at traditionalcookingschool.com with all of our free recipes and health articles. We do have a Bible-based cooking program that focuses on transitioning people from the standard American diet. People who like, you know, there's so much information out there. I don't know where to start. We have a step-by-step plan to switching over to what we call traditional cooking, but our program is Bible-based. So we tie it to, you know, what the Bible says kind of makes sense with the way God designed the earth and us and our plan for our nutrition. So if you'd like more information, you know, go deeper, we can assist you in that transition through our Bible-based cooking program. Jill has the links that she'll yes. have in the, put them down um, in the show notes yeah. Yeah, with the show notes. So yeah, that's where to find us. Well, cool. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate your time. And I know everybody has probably a whole notepad full of notes. So thank you Aww. so much. Thank you, Jill. It's been so fun to catch up with you. Thanks for listening along, my friend. I hope you enjoyed that episode and got as much out of it as I did. And hey, if you're feeling inspired to start preserving more food after listening to all these amazing interviews on the podcast this season, my Canning Made Easy program is one of the very best places to start. I created this course several years ago when I realized that a ton of people were getting stuck with canning processes and canning safety methods because there's just so much information online and it can feel super overwhelming. And I wanted to just make this process simple because canning does not have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be scary or uncertain. It can be something you do just while you're in the kitchen working on other things sometimes. It doesn't have to be an ordeal. And so I created this program of videos, eBooks, and charts that has since allowed thousands of you to learn how to can without the stress. And this year, I'm actually adding something extra special to the program. I'm going to be sending anyone who joins the program a box, an actual physical box from my homestead to yours of some of my favorite canning accessories. I'm going to be throwing in a couple of my favorite reusable canning lids, you know, so the canning lid shortage just doesn't have to be a concern. I'll send you a sample of my favorite sea salt that I use for all of my preserving, a flip top to convert your mason jar into all sorts of handy pantry storage, and probably my favorite part of all is my very much requested old-fashioned on-purpose kitchen towel. You may have seen it hanging in my kitchen in some videos or photos. It has the old-fashioned on-purpose manifesto on it. A ton of people have messaged me after seeing photos and said, Jill, where do I get the towel? And we finally got a batch of them printed up. And we'll be tucking that into your little goodie box whenever you join the course. So to check out the course, all that's offered and to see what's in my little box that I'll be sending you, just head on over to learnhowtocan.com to have a look.